At December's general election, Hastings got a new MP. That was the Conservative Sally Ann Hart. During the course of the campaign, Mrs Hart had faced accusations of both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. And there was a social media firestorm around comments she made at a hustings, held just seven days before election day, about the disabled in the workplace. But Mrs Hart recorded almost 27,000 votes on election day, giving her a majority of more than 4,000. Now in this, her first interview since being elected MP for Hastings and Rye, we talked to her about settling into life at Westminster, about some of the principles that are at the foundation of her political beliefs, and we talked to her too about what she hopes she can achieve as MP for Hastings and Rye in the coming five years. I'm here with Sally Ann Hart, Hastings and Rye's new MP. She was elected at the general election in December. Um, Sally Ann, how were those first few days in Parliament? Surreal? Yes, surreal, absolutely surreal. Um, you know, we had the, the, the campaign, um, the election on the Friday, on the Thursday night, sorry, not the Friday, and then straight into Parliament on Monday morning. And I have to say, I felt quite detached from the whole thing. You know, you go in there, eight o'clock on Monday morning, I had to be in there to meet IPSA to get my computer sorted out, the, uh, the laptop, then straight off to induction meetings at 8.15 to learn all about IPSA, digital services, GDPR rules about everything you can and can't do, a quick rush in procedural stuff. It was so much information, mm -hmm. but actually it was really useful yes. um, because I think because we were such a lot of new MPs, they'd organised this whole week of induction, um, which a lot of MPs don't get. So we didn't feel that we were floundering. I think a lot of us did feel floundering because <laughs> there's so much to organise. But we had some information about how to do stuff and how to, yeah. to progress offices and equipment and staffing. So we, I suppose you could say we were quite lucky to have induction meetings all week. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned offices, but I've read in the past that for a new MP in particular to find an office, it's all a bit of a scrum really, it's, it's, it's for, you know, who can grab what first. So it's not about grabbing what first, it's about the whips allocating offices. Right. So I still haven't got an office, um, so we've got this huge meeting room, um, there's about three or four meeting rooms for all MPs across parties, but obviously the Conservatives are together and the Labour Party MPs are together. And you have shared desks, so they've got equipment set up and you have to sit there uh, with your parliamentary assistant, which is what James D and I are doing, and getting through stuff there. So it's actually quite communal, mm. but it feels a bit disjointed not being able to call somewhere your own as an office. Um, you know, you want to have your coffee in there and there. <laughs> and I suppose there are times, given the nature of what you're doing, that there's a need for a little bit of privacy. Sometimes I think it's quite nice to be able to, you know, brush your hair mm. um, <laughs> in an office or whatever else you want to do, have a private conversation, which isn't possible. But if I need to have a private conversation, I walk into the corridor and then Ian Duncan Smith walks down the corridor and you sort of look at them like this and nod. It's surreal but I'm getting quite used to it now. That, that, that must be slightly bizarre is, is all of these people were very familiar with in television. Yes. The, the, the big names of politics and they are now your colleagues. You're They're your colleagues them. and you're expected to call them by their first name. 
Um, and all the sort of procedures, you know, don't shake hands with people. In, you don't shake hands with your colleagues because there's some kind of historic law that you all trust each other. You don't need to shake your shake. So people don't greet each other by shaking hands. They go, hello, Sally. And I go, hello, how are you? I was about to you know, ask about odd traditions because Parliament is full of them. In those, yes. You must be coming across those on an almost daily basis. Yes, yeah, so actually the best way of learning all these traditions is um, particularly in the chamber because there are so many rules about when you can speak in the chamber and what you have to say. So I haven't made my maiden speech yet, so I can't get up and do a speech in the House of Commons chamber, but I can ask a question. As you did yesterday. Which I did yesterday. So um, I, you have to apply to ask a question so you know what the business um, of the next week is. And you're given an opportunity to put in your bid to ask a question. And if they do the shuffle and if your name gets picked out, you then supply the question you want to ask. So that it gives the Minister or the Secretary of State beforehand an opportunity to perhaps prepare the answer to that or find out, because it's so much better if I, if, if I ask a question, for example, on the under 10 metre um, boats in Hastings and Rye, rather than the, than the Minister turn around and say, well, I'll have to come back, with you, come back to you with the answer on that one, if he's already looked it up and he can then answer that question. It actually progresses things much better. The one of the things, you, you, you look at Prime Minister's questions, for example, and there's all these people sort of bobbing up and down. Yes. What's, what's that about? So the bobbing, and I've learned about this, the bobbing is if you have not been successful in getting um, your name picked out to ask a question, you can still bob. Mm. So you can bob up and down to ask your question tied to the question that's just been answered. So you bob up and down. And I was told just this week that one chap sitting next to me, a really great um, Scottish Conservative MP was bobbing all the time and I said gosh you haven't had your question answered and he said well it's fine because he will have no the speaker will have noticed me bobbing today yep. he might not ask me today but he'll know that I've bobbed a lot today so he'll ask me tomorrow yes. so, so you have to have a question ready yep. and if you if you're bobbing and he asks you and you're bobbing because you want to be chosen tomorrow you need to make sure you've got a question ready to <laughs> ask them yes it's all these, it's, it's, it's amazing, yes. the sort of um, traditions and yep. processes. And does it feel an adversarial environment, given that you, know, you, are, you are sitting opposite the opposition? I think it's, there is an element of adversarialness mm. about it, but there's also um, quite a lot of working together. So when you've got these um, committees, the cross-party mm. committees, you've got... APPG groups which are often cross-party so it's working together to try and get things done and obviously the Commons is an adversarial chamber because yeah. it is about debate it's about putting your point of view forward asking questions putting someone on the spot to answer the question even from your own side mm. but also you might want to ask a question to give the Minister something to be able to say actually yes we've done that yeah. Uh, and that's to, sh to show what they've done as well. Yep. So it's not just adversarial. Yep. It's about giving someone the opportunity to say, we've, we've, we've achieved this, or this is what we're doing to, to solve this. And thank you for your question, good question. This is what we've done. Yep. The day-to-day -day life of an MP, and I noticed John Redwood wrote about it recently. Um, have you been there long enough to know what the routine is going to be like? Um, well, it's interesting because I suppose in many ways it's not what I expected in terms of the daily workload. So you're not, although you're 
sitting in the chamber on a Monday from 2.30 till 10, Tuesdays and Wednesdays from 11.30 till 7, and a Thursday 9.30 till 2.30 in the afternoon. You're not expected to be in the chamber all the time. And I think we've all seen the Parliament Channel and the television, mm. where it seems to be empty, and you're thinking, well, hang on, people are meant to be debating here. But meetings go on all the time. So if you've got a one-line whip, you don't have to go in to vote. If you've got a three-line whip, you can't leave the estate. And the estate is Parliament, basically. So you've got eight minutes when the bell goes to um, go and vote. And you've got to be in there and make sure you vote if you've got the three-line whip. So in terms of the business of the day, you are booking in meetings uh, to visit for constituents or uh, to organise something to do with education or something else during the time when Parliament sits because it would be possible to do it all outside yeah. that time. So everything carries on and I think there has to be a degree of flexibility so there might be something that comes up and you have to cancel it. Mm. And I think that's sometimes difficult because it's not always set in stone so you don't always know in advance that you're going to have to go and uh, vote on something, you might have a one-line whip or a three-line whip. Yep. Um, you, you, uh, I think that's the, that's the degree of, um, sort of uncertainty from time to time, but not all the time. So I think the day-to-day -day is um, you, you have to look at your diary for the day, and you're looking at all the meetings, and there's a lot of meetings. So it's about discussing things, there's committee meetings, mm -hmm. there's um, smaller group meetings, um, about how you progress issues. and. Mm -hmm. Uh, what do we need to do about you know family law or whatever else you're discussing or yeah. want to join in? So when I'm looking at my specific interests for Hastings and Rye, you know there's things like the defence, there's the foreign policy. I'm not interested in anything of that nature yeah. because I want to stick to the priorities that I have and what I feel that people in Hastings and Rye would expect me to focus on, which would be about transport, education, um, the judicial. Um, aspect, um, police, um, trans uh, fishermen, all that sort of thing. So that's where I'm going to be focusing my special interest groups yeah. in uh, uh, and committees and all that sort of thing on, on the issues that actually apply to Hastings and Rye. Yeah. When it comes to things like Australia with the fires and Iran, you know, I, I get special information that we get given um, by the policy research unit or from a letter from the minister or the secretary of state involved. And they will send letters via email to the um, MP to update them on, on the current situation, um, which is really useful because if we get an, an inquiry by um, a constituent on uh, the situation around what are we doing or, or the fires and who's helping the Australians with the fires, we know what, what's going on at government level in order yeah. to answer that question. Um, just final question on parliamentary procedure. There's been quite a bit made in the last 24 hours or so as, as the, the year has been laid out. Um, and you know, critics are saying you know, MPs are going to have an extra 20 days holiday because <laughs> parliament's not sitting. But because Parliament's not sitting, it doesn't mean an MP isn't working. Absolutely it? not. I mean, you know, the long, the more time you can spend in your constituency, the better. So you have to sit in part. You have to go up to Parliament Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday in your constituency. But if you're not sitting for 20 days, it gives you more time mm -hmm. in your constituency to deal with casework, make visits, go and visit schools. So actually, the fact that we're not sitting for for 20 days is means that I get more time in my constituency. 
And again, from some of what you were saying during the election campaign, being able to spend more time in the constituency, I suspect, is something you will. Absolutely, because this is who I'm working for. So the more I find out about what's going on in my constituency, the more I can help people in my constituency. And that's why I'm here, isn't it? Going back to the, to the election itself, I mean, there had obviously been discussion for most of last year about when a general election might come. Yeah. And it wasn't really until September that Sir Amber Rudd resigned the, the Conservative Party whip and it became clear she wouldn't be contesting the seat again. But I mean, you didn't actually become the candidate until after the campaign had already started. I know. So I think it was just so much going on in central office. And I, I, I don't know, maybe there was, they thought that perhaps she would change her mind. I don't know the reasons why it took so long, but it wasn't to do with the association. It's to do with central office and all the organisation up there. So I presume that there was a good reason why they didn't progress it sooner. Well, that must have been quite a baptism of fire, really, <laughs> to, to be dropped in at that point in, in well, the process. Well, I suppose you could say it was a baptism, baptism of fire, but actually, you know, I am a, I am a local district councillor, so I have been campaigning in this constituency um, for nearly a decade. Yeah. So actually, I know the constituency, I know how to campaign, I'm familiar with the issues. So for me, rather than campaign in my ward as a district councillor, I was campaigning for the constituency. So a baptism of fire, yes, to some extent, but not to a greater extent, perhaps. And you certainly were at pains to point out during the campaign that you are very local, that your family have been born and brought up in, yes. the, in this area and that you know, this area is, is, is very it's our, it's our home, yeah. yes. I'm, I, I'm so, you know, when I go up to Westminster um, and I'm in the city of London, yes, it's an amazing city and it's incredible, but I haven't worked in London since the late 90s. So I've lived in Hastings and Rye since 97. And, you know, London's great, but goodness, do I miss the open countryside, the beautiful Hastings, lovely Rye we've got, the seaside, the blue sky the cleanliness, because it makes you realise that London is quite dirty. Um, yes, but, uh, you know, it's, it's what I've got to do. So I want to help Hastings and Rye constituency. I have to be in London four days a week. And going back to the campaign, was the nature of the way the campaign developed, because it got a bit nasty and a bit dirty. In did, the last did, week, yes. yes. Did, did that come as a shock? Um, a, a little bit. I suppose I wasn't really prepared for the nature of the allegations because mm. that was quite shocking yep. um, and, and really not true at all. So that was quite shocking. Um, but it made me think that uh, actually if we allow people to try and bully and intimidate, it will stop good people coming forward to go into mm. politics and particularly women. I feel very strongly that there are so many people who've got a lot to offer and in the political scene, whether it's at local level or national level. And if we allow that sort of intimidatory type activism to dominate, it will stop good people coming forward. So um, I'm determined that um, it won't um, rule the day. In terms of your own motivations to embark on a political career, I mean, what, what, what 
obviously initially as a councillor, but what motivated you to get involved at that kind of level? At that level, well, it was actually working in Hastings as a magistrate, um, particularly in the family courts, witnessing the erosion of the of family life, children being removed from the care of their parents due to whether it was um, drug abuse or um, alcohol, substance misuse, neglect for the children. And I thought we really need to focus on um, getting it right for children and families, so early intervention and prevention measures so that we're not ending up um, further down the line taking children into foster care. And unfortunately, the, 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 the percentage of children who've been in foster care that go on to, com to, to commit crime is quite high. So if we get it right much earlier, we could be saving so much, not just economically, but um, socially as well. So for me, it was about realising that if I want to change the law, rather than administer it, I would have to actually take that step into national politics. And that's why I did it. Any particular political heroes that have shaped your... your well, I your, have your, to say, I've always been a huge fan of Disraeli because he was massively mm. into social justice and social reform. And, you know, I'm a huge believer in one-nation conservatism. Mm. So it's not just about our union, about Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales and England. It's about the whole, you know, you've got your um, social reform, you've got your social structure giving people opportunities, but also spending on the public services, having that safety net for people who can't help themselves. And, uh, and Disraeli really was the first person as a conservative to really look at that sort of social justice. And, and social justice is a term these days that I suppose the Liberal Democrats and, and Labour tend to sort of carouse their own. It's not something you often hear a conservative talking about in that way. And yet I've always thought of conservatives as being hugely into social justice because they're looking at focusing on the provision of opportunities, giving people the tools by which they can help themselves, but also about having that safety net, um, which I think is really important. And ambitions, I mean obviously you've now graduated from council to MP, do, do you have ambitions for the, for the top of government? Or? Um, well, when I look at the Prime Minister, I'm thinking, my goodness, who would want to do that job? No, my ambitions are to be the best MP Hastings and Rye has ever had, that I work really hard for my constituents and I can make huge improvements for them. And that, to me, is a fantastic ambition and that's what my ambition is. On the other side of, of ambitions, you ambitions as MP, you've been talking, and you've been setting out in the last week yes. what those ambitions are. You mentioned transport, education, fishing, NHS, um, and, 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 and the legal situation. Um, on local transport, I mean, there was the announcement made during the campaign about fast trains. Yeah. Um, and that was met with a, a sort of level of scepticism because it's been mentioned before and, and, and the perception is that nothing really seems to have happened. Why do you think you can make a difference? Well, I think, area? yes, I think there's been, you know, that, that it has been an ongoing issue, I think, for the last few years. Um, I think we've come to the situation now where we want to have action, not words, all the time. And I think there are measures in place that can facilitate the fast trains, but I think when we're looking at really what is necessary, so the meetings I've had this week, we need to invest more in signalling. And if we get more in signalling, then you can improve the efficiency of the trains and 
um, that in itself will lead to a better train service, but it will also lead to an opportunity to then perhaps get the fast trains in or improvement in some way. There are other ways of doing it. We can look at uh, a um, combination of battery run and diesel trains. Mm. Uh, I know there are environmental issues people are concerned about, about having the javelin trains. So really I want to focus on, yes, what can we actually do first to deliver on efficiency? And then we can look at the javelin trains. But I'm going to hold Grant Shapps to his promise to prioritise javelin trains. We've already sent him a letter this week to say, you promised this, and now we want <laughs> you, you to deliver it. You said, now we want. But you know, it's not just about trains. Um, I've been sort of thinking about my maiden speech um, for um, to do in the next month or so. And I've looked back at the maiden speeches from, for Amber Rudd, um, for Michael Foster, for Jackie Lay, and for Ken Warren, who became, he did his maiden speech in 1972. I was four years old in 1972, therefore I've told everyone my age. But they all talk about the necessity of improvements to the A21 as being the only way that Hastings can economically um, grow. And 50 years later, I will be asking for exactly the same thing. And that's something I'm going to really focus on in my maiden speech, because clearly for the last nearly 50 years, that's been the topic of conversation for every MP, and it still hasn't happened for us. So we've really got to focus on that, which is why when the government talks about investment in transport infrastructure, and they want to level up the country, and they're talking about more investment in the north, I will be saying, hang on a second, we need investment in the southeast as well, because this is absolutely necessary for Hastings to economically grow, is to have that improvement to the transport infrastructure, um, and we don't want to miss out on that funding. And it's certainly something you, you way proponent, Peter Chowney, made quite a lot of, is you know, the difficulty of developing Hastings economically yeah. when the transport links here are so poor. I know, and when you're looking at you know, the best model for um, growing an economy in a town is you, you have to develop that transport infrastructure platform. So that is road, rail, broadband, digital services. That's your um, infrastructure platform. But also tied into that is the education. So you want a really good skilled educate, um, skilled population locally. Mm. And that's not just about academics. It's also about technical education. It's people who are good at electricians. You know, we want proper electricians, plumbers, construction workers, mechanical engineers, all that sort of thing. It's about a skilled population. It's about a healthy population. So we want to make sure that we've got the investment in our local health service because um, as Churchill once said, a great, the nation's greatest asset is a healthy population. Yeah. Well, I would add to that that it's a healthy, educated population, whether it's academics or other um, skills. Um, and also it's the law and order aspect, so we've got to make sure that we live in a safe environment um, for this town. Um, so that's what I'll be focusing on. Because you mentioned education, and that actually leads me on to, to the next thing I had in my list, because that was the other big thing you in your list of priorities, yeah. that, that was there. And you've been a, a school governor, Yes. Um, so again you know firsthand yeah. what's happening at a, at, at a basic level within, within the schools in the area. So I was a governor for three primary schools in Hastings, and so for me, primary education is absolutely fundamental in um, embedding a love of learning 
um, discipline. And I know a lot of people don't like the word discipline, but people have to learn discipline, self-discipline, in able to achieve things. Um, and obviously a good quality of education. So, you know, all the research shows that if you have good quality teaching, it can overcome disadvantage. So I think we've got to aim in Hastings, and there are some great primary schools, but there is always room for improvement. And then when you go to the secondary level, um, you want to make sure that the progression from the primary school to the secondary schools is taken up and that the, that good education, love of learning, discipline is all taken up to the next level. Mm -hmm. And I know in this area we've got um, two sixth form colleges, there's East Sussex College and there's Arc Alexandra have a sixth form, but we've got two sixth forms in the constituency. It's not really that much, so I'd like to see a broader offer in Hastings. So it can't just be about academics. I'd love to see whether we can lobby for a technology institute or you know, an increase in technological learning to give people more skills. So you've got improvement in education, but also a, 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 more, a better breadth of education yeah. on offer for people here. I presume the building blocks are there because in the last yeah. decade or so there's been quite a lot of investment in yes. you know, St Leonard's Academy, yes. the Filshin, the Grove, Hastings Academy, now Ark, Merging, William Park and, yes. and, and Helenswood. So the secondary schools, the secondary education is all relatively new and relatively um, and I think that, you know, we've, we've got, it, it's, it is always improving. Um, with the Hastings Opportunity Area, that lump of government funding that came in for three years, really to look at social mobility and to, to, to really skilling people up, has been a game changer in Hastings. It's great to hear that that's going to be extended for another year. But I want to see more of that sort of thing in Hastings, and that's what I'll be lobbying for. I want people in Hastings to know what is, what is there available, what opportunities they've got for jobs. But also, if we have a skilled population in Hastings, it's a bit like a chicken and egg. Do businesses come to um, a town because of the skilled population, um, so they're attracted by the skilled population? Um, it's that sort of uh, what comes first. Mm. So I want to make sure that we've got the skilled population and a good transport infrastructure to encourage businesses to, to start up here and then grow. It's developing those on. So there's quite a lot of stuff we need to do and to continue doing, mm -hmm. but that's what I'm hoping that we'll be able to do. And your first question in the Commons yesterday yes. was on fishing. Of course, it um, had to be. And again, <laughs> a, key, you know, a, a key element of the local economy and it's something that your predecessor was, was, was heavily involved in as yes. well. So I'm really hopeful because we had the, um, the th third reading of the withdrawal, withdrawal bill went through yesterday. Um, we're due to leave um, the European Union on the 31st, which means we will regain total control over our fishing waters, which for me in Hastings and Rye, we've got a specific historic fleet. We've got the only, I think it's the only beach-launched boats mm. Um, it's a thousand years old or something, the heritage here. And, and, you know, we need to develop that. We need to encourage more fishing opportunities um, coming out of Hastings. So for me, moving forward, it will. the question I asked really was to make sure that the smaller boats, particularly in Hastings and Rye, get the opportunities that hopefully they won't get overlooked when you're looking at the, the bigger boats uh, in the country. And we've got to really make sure that our fishermen get all the opportunities possibly available to them. 
And the, the, the I think the final thing, but the, but the one of the other key planks in your list of ambitions for, for your, your, your time as, as MP was the NHS. Yes. And again, that's an area which during the campaign, the, the other parties tried to make their own. But your vision for Hastings and Rye, for what the facilities that we have available here, how do you, you see you've influenced, what can you do? Well I think it's, areas? you know, when I look at the conquest, it's it's improving all the time. The last three years it's improved a huge amount, but it does need more funding. So when you're looking at the funding formulas, it's normally based on per head of population, but it doesn't take into account the age of the population or the level of deprivation in a particular area. So we have quite a, an increasing age in our population in Hastings and Rhine. We also have some of the worst pockets of deprivation in the country. So I will be lobbying for more funding for the Conquest Hospital because I think that's what it needs. And also looking at excellence. And I know that the Conquest, they've got a problem with retention of staff and attracting staff. So we've really got to look at how we can make it more attractive. It's a great hospital. It's improving all the time. But again, we need to ensure that we have the right number of staff, the best quality staff that we can have to do that. So that involves lobbying by me, making sure I speak to the right people, and we get the money and the facilities we need in Hastings. Yep. So again, it's just about keeping Hastings in the map. Yes. Sure and my job right. is to be in there in Parliament, grabbing the Secretary of State for health, yeah and making sure that he knows that I'm fighting for Hastings and Rye. And, he, and, you know, someone said about being an MP is not a member of Parliament, it's being someone who's extremely persistent <laughs> in trying to get what they want for their constituents, yeah. and that's what it's about. Yeah. Um, interestingly, I noticed in um, his column last week, um, the council leader and your, your opponent in the election, Peter Chowney, was trying to give you some advice. Yes. Um, you've... you've, you've You've hit back, or, or certainly you've written a letter to him this week, sort of obviously inviting him to meet. And yeah. But you say in that letter about council budgets that it's still possible to deliver a high quality service even with restrictions on council budgets. That's clearly something that the Labour group in charge of Hastings Borough Council are not going to agree with you on. No, well then they wouldn't. No, I acknowledge that we've had cuts in council budgets and I know that many councils are struggling and they're finding it difficult. But there is, you know, we streamline, you can share services, you can share resources and that's something that I think we need to do a lot more of. Um, for example, when you look at the BIFA contract, the new um, recycling and rubbish collection, that's Hastings Borough Council joined forces with Rother and I think with Wealdham as well yeah. to try and work together to, uh, it's more cost effective. Um, but Hastings came out for the street cleaning services and I have to say a lot of comments we've had about the, the, the litter on the streets in Hastings. So you wonder to some extent how efficient it was or whether it was cost effective to come out of the street cleaning services. I think the, the argument was that that would give the the, the Hastings greater flexibility and greater control. Well, I'm not sure it's worked, has it? But there you go, that's just my opinion. Yes. So I think there are ways of streamlining. I, I understand that it is difficult to work to budget sometimes, but um, it's, it's an opportunity to look at where you can 
work together with other councils and share resources. Is it about thinking creatively? And yes. I hate this term, but thinking out of the box. They're thinking out of the box. New ways of doing it. A new way, innovative ways of doing it. I mean, goodness, we've got Dominic Cum Cummings in London mm -hmm. working for the Prime Minister, who's desperately asking for corkscrew thinkers and mm -hmm. people who can think out of the box because it's very healthy to be able to have innovative ideas. And they might not work, but we should be listening to all of them. On the subject of local government spending and local government budgets, Hastings Borough Council over the last four or five years have spent very heavily and borrowed very heavily to invest in commercial property, and quite a bit of it in the, in the retail sector. Mm. Um, I think now the or the Public Works Loan Board, something like £65 million. That's a lot and of money. some of that, not really, the loan doesn't mature until about 2060. It, is that something you see as, as why? Or do you have a view on, 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 on I the think, councils involved? Um, I think I can understand uh, councils wanting to look at um, uh, earning income potential. So they have to be very careful about what they invest in. I think retail is very dodgy. And I think you have to remember that it is taxpayers money you're using so you have to be you have to take proper advice and invest in it where it has the highest returns so we all know that retail is um, a difficult sector to invest in uh, it would worry me that a local council was using taxpayers money to invest in the retail sector knowing that it's um, it can go up mm. and down a bit so I have reservations yes about that Thank you for chatting to us. I mean, it's, been, it's been quite interesting going back to you know, your, your first days, how you, how, you, how you found the houses of Parliament. Um, and I hope we can do this kind of Definitely. thing. Definitely. Any time, Stuart. Excellent. Yes. Sally Ann, for now, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.